This is episode 131 with Alan Sparks. G'day legends and welcome to Your Life of Impact, where we connect with world-class athletes and coaches, health experts and enthusiasts, inspiring entrepreneurs and community leaders, all to teach you how to tap into your inner excellence. I'm your host, Brett Robbo, and I'm extremely grateful you're joining us today on your impactful journey. This episode is so fascinating. Talk about a life full of freaking tough challenges, physically and mentally. Alan Sparks is the Deputy Commissioner of the Mental Health Commission of New South Wales, but he's a former police officer who served on the front line for 20 years, where he was involved in things like the horrific aftermath of the Hilton bombing. He arrested some of Australia's most notorious criminals and faced the tragedy of murdered colleagues. Alan is also the author of his book, The Cost of Bravery. Alan's life experiences are phenomenally challenging and to witness the path he's chosen in life now to openly speak about these is super impactful and unbelievably empowering. Let me just read a couple of things about Alan's awards for his heroism. So Alan is one of Australia's most highly decorated citizens. He's one of only five Australians in the past 43 years to be awarded Australia's highest bravery decoration and highest civil award, the Cross of Valour, awarded for acts of the most conspicuous courage in circumstances of extreme peril. Now, Alan talks us through this experience in this episode. In January 2017, Alan was named in the Australia Day Honours List and was awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia, so the OAM, for service to mental health support organisations and the community. In August 2016, Alan was awarded Australia's fourth highest bravery decoration, the Commendation for Brave Conduct. Once again, Alan talks us through this conduct in this episode. It's really interesting why he was awarded these awards. In December 2012, Alan was one of only... 10 Australians to presented the to sorry to be presented the Queen's Diamond Jubilee medal. He's also the recipient of other significant awards for bravery, valor and service including the Royal Humane Society Gallant Award and the New South Wales Police Commissioner's Valor Award. <sighs> so it's safe to say that Alan knows a thing or two about bravery and mental health. And that's what this episode is all about. His story is a magnificent example of turning fear into courage and failure into success. Just a little word of warning though. Within this episode, Alan does discuss suicide ideation and we discuss some dark times in his life midway through this episode because reality is, as a first responder to some horrific incidents that Alan was, his mental health took a very steep decline in those times of fear and failure. So if these topics do trigger you, you can skip ahead when we get to those sections. But always remember that you're not alone if these are triggering for you. You can reach out 
if in need, you can reach out to Lifeline on 13 11 14. In this episode, we discuss bravery, what it is and whether we're all wired to be brave or not. We discuss Alan's captivating experiences of bravery that saved people's lives, the change room program and why Alan's so passionate about his impact there, what it was like being a police officer in King's Cross and arresting some of Australia's most notorious criminals. We discuss his experiences in the darkest moments of his life, his relationship with his wife in those challenging years, what worked for Alan to revitalize his mental and physical health, why a proactive approach to mental health is so important. We discuss his four foundation stones that we should all be nourishing and why, how Alan reversed type 2 diabetes. We discuss the mental health continuum model and how it can help you and a chat with so much more around the empowering aspects of mental health, including the power of kindness. There's so many things that we didn't cover about Alan's story, like he and his family sailing around the world, plus some other very detailed and intriguing occurrences from his life that that he writes about in his book. So I highly recommend that you get a copy of his book, which I've linked in the show notes to this episode, and you can find it on his website. Now, just to... Just quickly before we hear from Alan, there's still time to join functional medicine practitioner Carl Hewan and I for our Gut Health and Gut Brain Connection online program. Look, you've heard me talk about this plenty of times before, but if, you, if you've been wanting to improve your health and well-being or your family's health and well-being, jump onto the website and check out all the info of the program and you can read some of the other testimonials of pre- previous participants there. So that's at Your Life of Impact com forward slash gut health. Like I said, you've heard me talk about the abundance of value in this gut health program plenty of times. So I'm not going to go right into it again. It's all on the website. But it's chats like this one with Alan and earlier episodes with Anthony Minicello and many other guests that we hear from that highlight the power and importance of investing into ourselves at this level at the gut health and gut brain connection level for all areas of our health. So feel free to reach out with any questions at all about this program, which a few of you have actually done. It's been awesome to hear from some of you first with questions and information about your situation. And then I've been able to create more clarity for you of why and how this program could benefit you. Yourlifeofimpact.com forward slash gut health. Okay, now let's hear from the legend himself, Alan Sparks. So, Alan, what is bravery to you? Oh, Brett, I would like a dollar for every time that uh, topic has come up. (laughs) And it's a good question. And I think it's um, one that uh, we, we need to perhaps pull apart a little bit because there's many aspects to bravery and courage and I think that for me there's there's the the classic uh, theory behind bravery and one is that bravery encompasses uh, a choice so that if suddenly you're placed in a dangerous situation you've got a choice you can either stay there and do what you can or you can take off and run for the hills or you are in a place of relative safety and 
to go to a place of danger, you have a choice. You can either stay in a safe place or you can head out and go into that place of danger. So I think that's for me, is that traditional concept of what bravery embraces. But I like to take it uh, a little step further and I equate it to caring. So as humans, we all have the capacity to care for other people or other things. And I think bravery is how willing you are to care. Brilliant. And I bring that up because you were awarded the commendation for brave conduct and your story of why you were awarded that is very touching. Can you talk us through that experience of of how it went down from your perspective? Because as you said, bravery encompasses choice and there's a lot of choice and caring in that situation. Yeah, the, I was awarded the Accommodation for Brave Conduct uh, in relation to a incident that occurred at the Redfern Railway Station. Redfern is a suburb of, of Sydney and my daughter and I had gone into town. She wanted to buy some stuff from a, a shop in town. She was only young at the stage. We caught the train in um, at that weekend. There was track work on the on the train system, so all the one, trains were going in on one line through Redfern and uh, the underground platform, and all the trains out of the city were coming through uh, the other side of the platform. And we're on the way home. We had to change trains at Redfern, so we went down to this deep underground section where we don't normally go. Uh, we're just standing there chatting. Uh, trains were far more frequent because of the track work. And I saw an Aboriginal man come down the, the escalators and he, he caught my eye because he was just sort of walking around in circles at the base of the, the escalator. And then I got distracted and suddenly heard this really strange noise, which was a like a gasp of, of just a collective gasp of people. And people started to run towards the platform and, and I ran over and I, and I looked down and I saw the, um, the Aboriginal man um, laying on the tracks. And I, from memory, I, I recollect hearing a noise, which I can only assume was the, um, the announcement about the, when the next train was due. And I flicked my head around and I saw the electronic timetable and it said the next train was due in one minute. And it was a case of, um, well, what do you do? <laughs> so clearly, if 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 nothing happened, uh, the the train would have um, hit the the chap and killed him because he was just laying there motionless. And I also remember seeing there was like a, a concave under the platform. There's a, a depression in in under the platform, and I thought, well, if I can jump down, I might have to um, just roll him into there and and try and get in behind him and cover him up. But I jumped down and. Um, tried to assess him as quickly as I could, you know, looking for blood from the ears or anything like that. And he started to sort of to move and try to get up. So I, I literally picked him up under the arms and lifted him up to other people who were standing on the platform and they grabbed him and hauled him up um, onto the platform. And then they helped me um, helped me get up as well just before the train came in. And, uh, and yeah, and we saved him. You know, that's not the only brave thing you've been awarded for you've had other experiences where you've saved people as well i believe yeah i was awarded a, um, a medal called the cross of valor which um, in in factual terms is australia's highest bravery decoration um, 
the, the Victoria Cross for Australia is the highest award for gallantry, but the Cross of Valour is the civilian equivalent. And again, factually, there's only ever been five of those awarded since 1975 when they changed the Australian Honours and Awards system. And I was awarded that uh, medal for uh, helping to save the life of a little boy who'd been uh, swept 600 metres down a, a flooded stormwater pipe in the Coffs Harbour floods back in 1996, so yeah, 23 years ago now. So you had to actually go down in the pipes? Yeah, I, I did uh, with my workmate, uh, Gav Dengate. Dav, Gav and I were, were police officers and we were first on scene and we entered the uh, the flooded pipe system a number of times. Uh, initially, we thought we could you know, see the little boy way down the other end of the pipe, but but when we searched that pipe, we discovered uh, it wasn't him. And then we were radioed to say that they can hear a child screaming 600 metres further down the pipe. And Gav and I got back down into the pipe systems and, and again searched the pipes. And so spurred on by the screams of the little boy, we um, we eventually found him and, and were able to, to get him out. And that you know, that second section, we, um, we were assisted by a young paramedic, uh, Mick Maher. And it was a pretty extraordinary day, Robbo. Um, you know, the fact that we got this little boy out alive and uh, in real terms he should have died. But uh, there was some, you know, some very, very tense moments. But, um, you know, the, the great parties, we got him out alive and and he and I um, are still, still connected to this day. Oh, I love that. Where does that brave nature come come from for you and do you believe that everyone has bravery within them or is it a learned behavior i think certainly for me it stems from my police training and you know i look at certainly what gavin did that day uh, he was equally as brave as i was uh, mick ma was equally as brave i mean mick being the paramedic so i think first responders uh it's part of your training it's part of your your makeup uh, but, you know, we, we hear so often people who have never had any training whatsoever and do these phenomenally brave acts that just comes from within them. But I, I think it gets back to if you're a caring person, you're more likely to do something extraordinary to to help somebody when they're in a, in a dire situation. If you're somebody who doesn't care about others, yeah, I'm not sure whether you would do the same so yeah when you relate it back to that caring aspect it's definitely something that is within all of us but it's whether people are actually triggering it and responding to that caring nature or not yeah yeah so and i said you know it it doesn't have to be a life-threatening situation um i think people who you know spend their lives caring for others uh, are extremely courageous people Mm. you know we look at our we look at our People, our nurses and the doctors, who who care so deeply for people under the, under, um, you know, who are sick and injured in, in in hospital, and they just work so hard to try and help them, and I, and I think that's courageous. So there's many aspects to it. Yeah, well said. Now, mate, we're going to dive in deeper to your abundantly uh, intriguing story, but before we do, I want to just take a moment to say, Alan Sparks, welcome to your life of impact. Oh, thanks, Robo. It's great to be talking to you. And, <laughs> and, I, and I've really loved our time together, you know, working with uh, the, the stuff we do, mate. It's, it's just, I always see this huge smile on your face and you're, and you're always positive and, and inspiring. So it's 
it's always great to be spending any time with you. Oh, I agree, mate. I think we're singing from the same song sheet through different experiences. And, and what you're talking about there is how we've been connected through that brilliant change room program. And I've spoken about it a lot on this podcast because I've had a few of the other mentors on, on here too, including the man great. himself, Matty Elliott. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so mate, I'm super grateful to have you on here today to, to share your journey. And speaking of your story, I've heard good parts of it from the change room program. And, you know, there's a lot of things that we could really unpack. What I'm really interested in to start it, start it off, it links back into the bravery aspect you were talking about. And you were a police officer in King's Cross for many years, uh, probably back in the days where there was a lot more action going on. I'd I just need to ask you, you must have some intriguing stories from your time there. Oh, yeah. The, you know, the life that I led as a very young young man and a very young police officer, uh, it was complete contrast to the area where I grew up and the life I had before I came to Sydney. Uh, it, was, it was like I'd been transported to another planet. Um, <laughs> you grew up in Cumnock, did you, out near Orange? I did, mm. yep. Went to school yeah, at Orange, yeah, and played um, played rugby all through the Central West. And uh, you know, before I came to Sydney, I was I'd left school. I'd done you know, jackarooing and uh, working the shearing sheds. Ended up being a shearer, and uh, yeah, I mean, always been used to hard, really hard physical physical work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think I was always. Uh, I don't say inspired, but certainly respected the fact that uh, if you wanted to achieve anything in your life, you had to put your back into it and give it your best shot. And that was, I think, a learned learned aptitude for my dad. Uh, my dad was an exceptionally hard worker, and I didn't didn't ever want my dad to think that you know, I, I didn't believe the things that he believed in. And the upbringing then and that hard nature or that that growth mindset taking that to king's cross obviously shaped your policing experience there yeah i think that you know i did um unfortunately i couldn't go to university um you know, my family just we weren't financial enough for me to go to uni so i had to look at other options as far as a career was concerned and yeah, I, when I think when I looked long and hard at what a police officer's career could mean, I thought, yeah, that's that's something I'm, I'm going to have a crack at. And, you know, I was loving my lifestyle before I came to Sydney. I, I really enjoyed working in the sheds. I was really enjoying my rugby. And I thought, well, if the cops don't work out, I'll just go home and play, keep playing footy and, and keep shearing sheep. So, um, but I came to Sydney and... Yeah, you know, from the time I went to the to the academy, it was just a lifestyle that I really enjoyed. You know, that that, that sort of sense of working together and overcoming you know, the challenges of, of the hard training, and and then when I started as a as a cop on the street, uh, yeah, it was very quick to realise that you know, this is this is what I I really wanted to do because I just loved it so much. What was it that you loved about it? Was it the the bits of walking the streets? Was it the the mindset of being that 
that caring enforcer? What was it that really drew you to, to love being a police officer? I think the, the fact that you would go to work and you never, ever knew what was going to happen. It was every day you, you knew something extreme or extraordinary or unusual was going to happen. And because of the area I worked, Darlinghurst, King's Cross, Woolloomooloo, Surrey Hills, those areas, you know, it was very high crime rates. Uh, it was a shifting uh, environment in regards to heroin and yeah, complete contrast to my, my life that I had before. And I worked with really, really good people who were good, honest, genuine people who were very proud of what they were doing. And I spent um, oh, probably nine months or so at Darlinghurst and then I went over to King's Cross and started walking the beat. And that was, uh, again, something I absolutely thrived in that, in that environment because of, of the work we were doing. That. But I think the thing that stands out most is um, just not knowing what was going to happen next. <laughs> Well, that's that's what really intrigues me because for everyone listening here, we'd just be thinking, and you say, you know, walking the beat so casually, but we only see it on the TV series or the Australian movies and we just have the experience from that perspective. Did you did you ever fear, fear the safety of your life with everything that was going on in those times around those areas? Not so much fear my life. It was, I mean, there's certainly many times where, our physical safety was was at risk because uh, back in those days our communication systems were very basic, uh, and we didn't have the the police numbers that they have today. So, for example, on Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, you know, be myself and my partner would be on the beat, and because of the traffic gridlocks. Uh, when you got into a situation of you know, a brawl or whatever, you could call for help, but but no cars could get through. So you had to be very mindful of of how to take care of yourself and try and de-escalate things as much as you possibly could. So you became great communicators. Uh, you learned how to defend yourself. Uh, you learned how to apprehend people um, and. But also there was lots of times where you saw people whose lives were being absolutely destroyed through drugs turn into crime and uh, there's some very sad times, Robbo, um, just seeing how how life can turn to crap for people. Yeah, I can imagine you'd be exposed to so many different realities. Yeah, you are and, and they're very harsh realities and I think for, for many or for most, if not all, police who worked in that area, you know, we used to have the belief that working in, in what we call number three division, you saw the absolute wealth of the, of the nation and you also saw the, the absolute poverty that, that uh, people can be living in. And you, how long were you a police officer for? Uh, all up about 20 years. Okay. And I want to take a little bit of a shift here uh, to, to start to talk around mental health aspects. And this is a big part of your book, which I'm linking in the show notes and um, highly recommending for people to check out too. And, and thank you for sending it to me. 
I've started oh, it, but uh, with with the travels back to Sweden, haven't finished it yet. But I've I've heard your story many times, and you know it's such an epic story within there. And there's lots of different areas that people can learn from. But I really want to hone in on on the mental health aspect and sort of link it back to I guess those days as a police officer obviously took their toll on you. Well, they, yes, they did, but. That period of my life was only a small percentage in real terms of my total police career. But with the benefit of hindsight and my experience with working with highly qualified clinicians and other people, with yourself and, and NAM and many, we get to understand why I became so unwell and why I developed the mental illnesses that I did. And from that, we can then learn as to, well, is it possible to reduce the risk of of people developing these types of mental illnesses that relate to trauma? And I, yes, I believe we can. So whilst it was a, a horrific experience, the, the positive is that we've learned from it. And from that knowledge, we're then able to, to help people. So, th- and that's that's your reflective point now. What was it like for you in those times? What were you experiencing? And and you know now the why? Why was why did that? Why did you fall into those dark places? Well, I I was diagnosed with two mental illnesses. One was post traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, as it's commonly called, and the other was a major depressive disorder. Um, now, again, factually, 80% of people who have a diagnosis of PTSD will have a comorbidity of depression. So what's it like to experience those? Uh, I can't describe in words adequately enough except to say it's the most horrific experience that a human being can possibly ever go through because it just doesn't go on for a, you know, a few days. It, it, uh, it lasts tragically for a very long time. But what caused me to become so unwell? Uh, well, I believe it was first and foremost, I went from being extremely healthy physically and mentally to becoming uh, overburdened with, with work situations. I then became chronically stressed um, or, or burnt out as we call it. And when I was in that state, I was extremely vulnerable to some uh, horrific incidents that that occurred and because I was so burnt out I was so vulnerable to these mental illnesses uh, developing and and ultimately taking control and I think that one of the one of the strongest memories I have of when things started to go south for me was I became very very frightened that I was I was losing control I wasn't coping and I was uh, was going mad, and when you reach that stage, uh, yeah, life life is not good. What were the telltale signs for you when you felt like you were going mad? I think uh, an inability to uh, do anything that I used to find so incredibly easy to do. It was, and this feeling of, of being totally out of control all the time, like like your life was just spinning before your eyes. You couldn't stop it, and 
you just couldn't focus, you couldn't perform, you couldn't have, develop rational thoughts, and you, know, you, you start to feel as though that you, you're really hopeless, you're really weak, you feel very ashamed, you feel very guilty, um, you feel very worthless, and you're, you're just trying to, to hang on for dear life, and then those feelings just become um, too overwhelming and uh, for, for many people, uh, I reached the stage where I thought, no, I, I, can't, I can't live like this anymore. I've, I've got to end my life. That's, that's a tough place to be in and, and you were still in your job while these thoughts and these feelings were heavily weighing you down. Yeah, I was. Um, yeah, I started to become unwell probably in relation to the initial development of those mental illnesses um, by about July 1995 and then by October 1996 um, I was making serious plans to end my life. So I endured the, the horrors of, of PTSD probably for a good 15 months or so. What do you mind me asking? What, what is it, what do you believe or and from a reflective point or was there an actual uh, turning point in, a, in an instant that, that stopped you from taking your life if those thoughts and those feelings were so strong? And like you said, you know, you're frightened of going mad and losing control, irrational thoughts. What stopped you from actually going through with it? Uh, it was one of those sliding door moments. I was um, in uh, at work in the morning, and uh, I had my service revolver, and I was walking to the bathroom to kill myself. And a colleague walked in and uh, saw the gun in my hand, and obviously realised that uh, something wasn't right, and, and um, got the gun from me and. Um, yeah, so just a, one of those interceptions of life. It's unbelievable to hear it like that, like a sliding door moment. And then I guess you went through the processes of seeing the professionals and, and getting help through it because it's not just like a, I imagine, okay, there they stopped you and life's all good again. Yeah, it was a, um, and also we're, we're talking you know, a long time ago, mate, so we didn't, um, we didn't really know what we know now and uh, they, I was put in a police car and, and driven home and my wife who was also a police officer they contacted her on the radio and suggested she get home ASAP um, they dropped me off at home and left me there and then Deb came home and uh, this was the first first knowledge that Deb had that I was in a bad way because I've been such a, a so clever at masking how bad things really were. Um, and that was in the afternoon and I think it was in the afternoon. I, I can't remember really. And a colleague rang up and organized for me to be taken to hospital for some crisis counseling. Um, I don't remember getting to the hospital. I just remember being there and, and uh, that's when the, the floodgates opened as far as me disclosing how bad things were and 
they wanted to schedule me, um, but Deb refused to allow that to happen. And on the, I think on the promise that she'd bring me back to hospital the next day. Um, Sorry, what does it mean to be scheduled? Scheduled is when, under the Mental Health Act, you can be forcibly restrained in a psychiatric unit. Okay. Uh, or you can be, uh, the police can take you there and you'll be admitted and you know, certainly against your will uh, and, phys and physically restrained if need be uh, to prevent you harming yourself or anybody else. And as a cop, you know, to schedule somebody, that was something that was a common occurrence done by police officers. Um, and you know, as, a, as a serving police officer, to be scheduled is, um, there's, there's, no, there's no worse thing that could possibly happen to you. So Deb did take me back to the doctor the next morning, the police medical officer, and, and uh, again, I was in a very, very bad way, and he contacted the local psychiatrist who worked at the mental health unit and got me up there to see him straight away, and that's where, um, where Deb drove me up, saw him, and I was basically given a choice about living or dying. What do you mean by that? What was the choice? A uh, very blunt question. A psychiatrist said, Al, do you want to live or do you want to die? Uh, he said, if you want to live, I might be able to help you. If you want to die, I, I just don't know what, what could possibly be done for you because of, of the state I was in. It's almost like the matrix with the red pill and the blue pill. And you obviously chose to, to live. Yeah, I did. I mean, I, I think again, like most people who have, have died by suicide or have made an attempt on their life, they don't actually want to die. But Life just becomes intolerable. Um, you know, the, the agony you go, you are in. It's it's just yeah. You know, it's impossible to to describe it, Robo. But um, yeah, you know, for me, he's always had a very, you know, I believe, a very strong character, a very proud person. Um, it was just uh, yeah. You know, I, I never believed that I could ever ever have reached that stage, but. Yeah, I did. And it must have been extremely tough for Deb through those times as well. Yeah, it was. Uh, you know, it, she was a mum of a young child and, um, and you know, she was working in a very, very challenging area. She was a detective in charge of the child protection team. Um, her mum had only died a few weeks before uh, and you know, suddenly she's gone from me being there to essentially having somebody under her care who she had no idea who this person was, what their life was about, what they were capable of doing. Um, yeah, it must have been absolutely horrific for her. And so you chose to live. You had that, that very blunt question. And like you said, it was a long time ago. How many years ago was this? This was October 1996, so 23 years ago. What were the main changes that you had to implement over time and and what you learn from going through those that you consistently implement into your life now to present uh, prevent yourself from from slipping back into those states the first couple of weeks it's a bit of a blur but i was on placed on extremely strong medication um, antipsychotic medication which is designed to prevent you from doing anything. Um, you, you just essentially become a zombie. And agreeing to see the psychiatrist three days a week. 
and just trying to stay alive, basically. And I was also on antidepressants. And I think for the my my strongest memory of that time was just sleeping. All I did was just sleep and sleep and sleep and sleep. Um, didn't eat. Uh, would get up and would, would you know, I was smoking heavily at that stage, uh, drinking coffee, and I think um, it was just trying to stay alive. And uh, and from that time, you know, the psychiatrist explained what what PTSD was. Uh, we discussed not in great detail, but certainly things that he believed had contributed to me developing PTSD. And yeah, you know, I I I just wanted. I know I wanted to get better, but I it wasn't a case of well, when's this going to happen? It's just taking each each hour by hour and day by day. And um, you know, I, I don't say it was an enjoyable experience to go to see the psychiatrist. In many ways, it made me feel maybe even more humiliated and ashamed that I couldn't cope and had to be under the care of a psychiatrist. And I think that's one thing we failed to understand is that... Um, just because a person's receiving psychiatric care doesn't mean it's a positive experience for them. Mm. In many ways, can be, be very detrimental to a person's mental health because of the the accompanying emotions that go with that. So it was just trying to hang on, and that was um, a situation that lasted for quite a long time, and then slowly but surely. Uh, the psychiatrist wanted to look at me rebuilding my my health, my whole health. So we we started working on regaining some degree of physical health, and uh, I was given a choice to give up um, two out of three of my vices. One was alcohol, one was cigarettes, and one was was caffeine. So I said, uh, I want you to give up one at first, then two, and then one day we might work on the third. So I gave up alcohol and caffeine and kept smoking uh, and started to you know, get back back to doing some training and uh, just kept trying as hard as I could to to fight hard to be fit enough to go back to work. So that was a good goal for you, was it? That, okay, I'm going to get back to work. That was your determine, determination to get back into the workforce. Well, it's certainly my major goal. I don't say it was a good goal, but it was certainly a major goal. Because um, for me, I had the belief that, well, if I can go back to work, that means I'm okay, that I'm, I can go back to being the person I used to be. But you know, because of my Ill, mental illnesses uh, had been so chronic, um, I, was, I was very badly damaged. And whilst I wanted to, the reality was probably I was never going to get going to get back there. But I never wanted to think that I couldn't go back. Mm. Because if I thought probably I couldn't go back, then that would have been a, a major hurdle for me to overcome. Yeah, exactly. So when you've got a goal and a vision like that, it makes you, like you said, give up the vices, take those small steps. There's light at the end of the tunnel, so to say. And it was obviously those... I shouldn't say obviously, but do you believe that it's those lifestyle choices that you started to implement that really started to 
change the trajectory and bring you back into alignment? I just wish I'd known back then what I know now, Robert, in relation to, you know, I never knew why sleep was so important and I never mm. knew why our, our, our diaphragmatic breathing is so important and how helpful it is. And I never knew why our, our what we eat is so important and I never knew why um, moving and exercise is so important. And, you know, obviously all those things um, became a, a very important factor, not only in relation to my, my ultimate recovery, but also what I see as critically important as far as a proactive approach to reduce the severity and or incidence of, of trauma-related mental illness. So, you know, I, I did eventually rebuild myself physically. Um, I became you know, very fit and strong again. My mental health was probably um, 50%, but I thought I was getting better. And then, um, you know, I got a phone call from headquarters to say that my career had finished despite me never wanting it to be finished or ever applying to be discharged. Uh, it was just a very cold, impersonal phone call to say, uh, yeah, you're out. See you later. Wow. Did that trigger anything mentally and emotionally within you Oh yeah, at that yeah. time? I was gutted. Back? I was absolutely gutted and it pushed me back to a very, very dangerous place. Mm. What kept you going to not to not go back further into those dark places that you'd had experienced? Oh, I think that having, um, having Deb and my daughter, uh, and Deb had been so supportive, uh, I think probably subconsciously it was like, um, you, you owe Deb, you owe this to her, you, you can't give up now um, as much as I wanted to, uh, you just can't. And I, you know, my, my heart breaks for, for people who, who don't have somebody like that in their life that aren't, aren't as supportive as, uh, as Deb was and is. Um, um, w- without her, I just don't think there would have been any, any reason to, uh, to continue on. Mm, that support network, and like you said, it breaks your heart for people who don't have that direct, close relationship and support, and that's a big part of what we see being successful as part of the change room program that you've mentioned there before as well and and you know encouraging the proactive approach within people too but to be that support network because i guess that's a mindset too where we think we have to make these changes on our own or otherwise we're not good enough or we're a failure or we just don't trust the process of of other people to help or support us yeah and it's and i think uh, particularly for people who, you know, men and women who have always led a very outwardly um, strong, dependable character. Sorry, you know, they, they appear to be very strong and also are very strong, dependable people. Um, to, to suddenly be the one being cared for, it doesn't sit well within you naturally. Um, and so that's, yeah, that's a real challenge. But, but when you are busted and broken so badly, um, it's, you just realise that, yeah, I've, I've got to get help because if I don't get help, um, I will never get better. And is that why I've heard you say that 
you don't believe that the the advice of just speak up and uh, you know have the conversation i've heard you say that you don't believe that that's the best advice is that why of what you're just saying there because it's actually not that easy for people well it's not no it's it's not a natural thing i don't believe for people to ask for help and to just expect people to speak up i think is being totally disrespectful and ignorant because you know we we don't we don't want to speak up we don't want to to be honest about how horrific things are and how horrible life is. We, you know, it's you're trying so so hard to push all those feelings away. To finally say, "Oh my God, I, I can't cope anymore. I, I need help." Um, it's it's a really really horrible place for people to be. So I know it's you know, self denial, but. Sometimes that's the only way that people can hang on is, is to is to deny how bad things really are, but just to expect people to to speak up, yeah, I think is is very very wrong. I know there's a lot of mental health charities that encourage this, just speak up. In and you're sort of saying that it's not the you don't believe it's the best advice. What do you believe is the best approach? Is that coming back to what you talked about there? Essentially what it means to be a human. So looking at your sleep, your breathing, your exercise, your support networks. I don't say it's not the best advice because ultimately it is It is the right thing to do. But what I say is, is not right. It's just this expectation that it's so easy to do that it's, okay, it's just, a, just, just a very, just a natural thing to do is speak up and, and ask for help. Well, uh, no, I'm sorry. That's, that is not the way it is. So, mm-hmm. you know, we, we have to find a way to allow people to disclose when they are psychologically moving across the mental health continuum. And that's why I love that little men- mental health continuum so much because mm-hmm. you know, as, as we show, it's, it's very easy for people to indicate where they are on that continuum if they're in a state of, of illness or injury, psychological illness or psychological injury. Uh, in a state of a diagnosed mental illness or yet to be diagnosed mental illness, it's so easy to use that continuum card just by simply pointing to a colour or a or a section of that card. That makes it really easy to speak up. And these are, these are what we have to be conscious of is, yes, it's important for people to disclose. It's important for people to to show others where they are so that so that the appropriate help can be provided to them but it's making it the easiest way possible. Can you just explain that continuum a little bit more for everyone listening that might not have been exposed to it? Yeah, the, the continuum that uh, I refer to was developed by the Mental Health Continu- sorry, the Mental Health Commission out of Canada, and they have a, a state of a person's psychological health broken into four sections identified by colours. So you have green, yellow, orange and red. So green is on the left-hand side, red's on the right-hand side, and across those four colours are the descriptions of a person's state of psychological health and or behaviour. So you can really, really quickly identify where you are psychologically on that continuum. And it's also really easy for people to identify in others where they are on that continuum. So it's a a twofold benefit. One is it allows a person to use the continuum to 
to indicate when they're not well and also for others to, to help that person who is not well understand where they are. Yeah, it's actually brilliant. I hadn't actually seen it until I watched uh, your presentation at the Change Room program and I thought that's the simplicity that we need, like you said, for people to be able to just say, that's where I'm at, right yeah. there, yeah. that colour. Yep. And it's also really good for people who are not physically, sorry, psychologically uh, unwell to realise where they are and and be as proactive as they can, as quickly as they can to start heading back to the left-hand side of the continuum. Mm. Just building back on to what you said there before about proactive approach and what you mentioned um the sleep, breathing, exercise, community support, because that's what I loved about hearing your story is all the challenges you've been through and the learning process, but now your passion and drive and you can see that it's, you know, it's part of your purpose is to help people understand what are those key elements that we can be doing on a daily basis to help minimize or to help prevent when it's a proactive approach or to help get through the challenges. Yeah, and that gets back to those, uh, what I call my four foundation stones, Robbo, that unless we are sleeping well, unless we are eating correctly, unless we're, we're moving and, and or exercising, without those things being really solid, um, our health physically and mentally is going to deteriorate. We add a fourth one in, uh, which yeah, I, I like to use because it is so effective, is the diaphragmatic breathing. So when we're in a situation where we're wound up and tense, not sleeping, uh, full of anxiety, full of worry, by using our, our body's natural basic breathing techniques in a sort of a turbocharged way, we can have a significant improvement in such a short time. So, so then if we, we then expand all of those in, into the four foundation stones, if we can do all those things as well as we possibly can, that's a really good base point to start with. And the better we can do that, then the better our health will be. So if we've reached a stage of being across that continuum to the right-hand side, either the orange or the red. If we can start rebuilding those along with our clinical uh, interventions, our therapies, maybe our medications, whatever we need, I believe our recovery process will be far more effective and far quicker. It's such a resonating message and it makes sense to come back to the elements of what the human body and mind is designed to do and to, to implement those strategies. I'm really interested to hear you talk a little bit more about the diaphragm breathing from your experience. I, I loved it the last time we presented together at the change room and I was using the M-Wave Pro equipment where we monitor people's heart rate variabilities and teach them how to do really good breathing. Uh, and you said that you've actually now bought this equipment and monitored it your own. So you're really really wanting to enhance and optimise these key areas of the breathing in your life. Yeah, and it's, it's you know, when I first saw uh, you guys present that uh, software and and the, the exercise, you could, you could just see how quickly the change was made in the person who was hooked up to the monitor. 
but also I could see the other people in the room were essentially getting into the same breathing process and just the the atmosphere in the room completely changed. So I wanted to learn more about it. So I, I bought the program. I use it. I use it in demonstrations for first responders and they really get it. But also I then um, wanted to know more about it. You know, I wanted to know some science behind it. And one of my colleagues at the Mental Health Commission is a, is a wonderful psychiatrist. And I was talking to him, Martin about it and, and he explained the science about it. So that made it even more more interesting mm. and gave me a greater understanding how when we when we breathe diaphragmatically we are shutting off that that hpa axis so that fight or flight uh process that, that we go through when we're feeling very scared or or anxious when those stress hormones are starting to be released Diaphragmatic breathing shuts that process off, and that's why we calm down and things things all settle down again. Uh, so that was that was an added bonus to learn even more about it and make it even more effective. So the lovely part about getting this information out is uh, there's a particular friend of mine. He's a a good good commander in one of the first response organisations. Um, he's actually bought two laptops and two and the M-Wave program and loaded them up on onto two of the laptops and he set up a quiet room um, at their at their headquarters and so for now the first responders can go in and use that, that quiet room anytime they like and anecdotally the difference it's making to these first responders is phenomenal. They're all saying, oh, I just feel so... I went in there feeling really wound up and tense and I'd been to a critical incident and it wasn't good. But I've, I've done my five to ten minutes of, of diaphragmatic breathing, got myself back in order, and I feel fantastic and I'm right to go again. So it's, oh, brilliant. Yeah. I love hearing how it's, it's used in situations like that because there's so many powerful elements of the breath and and that equipment is just helping people get buy-in and also teaching them the the coherence aspect and the rhythm and to make them realize that they have the control and the opportunity and the power to shift like you said there's so many internal and scientific processes of how it helps us at so many different levels and that's what i I just love about it thanks for sharing that it's awesome to hear how how you guys are using it yeah look it's uh, it's really exciting and i think um in many ways we're on the cusp robbo of of really changing the way that uh people are able to take so much better care of themselves and these issues as you know don't only relate to first responders i mean so many people today their lives are full of fear because of the insecurity in their jobs um, the demands being placed upon them professionally personally financially emotionally um, you know people are living in a world of fear which they, they should not be but unless they learn how to manage it um, yeah, the, the consequences can be uh, can be horrific yeah absolutely you're exactly right and that's the the people who I work with majority of the time and not the first responders and not exposed to the extremes like what you guys are and have been and the people you work with. And, and it's, it's still 
with society that we live in and technology and judgment and fear stimulates our nervous systems into that fight or flight response for majority of the time. Yeah, yeah, and that's um, that's all good if it's if it's appropriate and their body can work 100% effectively. But mm. but as you know, um, once one element of our body starts to break down, the knock-on effect. Uh, yeah, it can make life uh, very, very challenging. Absolutely. I'd love to shift gears a little bit and just ask uh, before we wrap up, what getting a bit more of an understanding about what your current role looks like as the Deputy Commissioner of the Mental Health Commission of New South Wales. Do you, Within that role, do you get a chance to be this same sort of voice and do the work that we're talking about or is that... Um, you know, is that done through just your speaking engagements with programs like the Change Room program and what you're talking about there that you're doing with first responders? Look, I'm a, I guess my my key role with the commission is a to support the the, the programs that the commission develops, but also to be a very strong advocate for a proactive approach to good physical and mental health. Um, you know, we have a. Uh, policy basically called the the living well policy and it's designed to assist people to live well physically and mentally so I'm a really strong advocate for a proactive approach to that and I try and spread the knowledge that I have gained to help people a understand why things can go wrong and what they can do to minimize the risk of those um, that physical and psychological damage being done to them so yeah, you know, I, I suppose, mate. I, I, I don't dwell on it, but certainly I'm conscious of the fact that many years ago I was um, probably at the worst psychological state somebody could be in, and a very poor state of physical health accompanying that. And I'm now, you know, most of my life I spend in that green zone where I'm physically and psychologically uh, extremely healthy. And yeah, you know, I, I like. I don't want people to ever get where I got to and I just want people to, to live a great life and, and be, be as healthy and as happy as they can be. So that's one role that the, the Commission very kindly allows me to do. And does that mean you're not working so much with the law aspect in around the mental health laws? Is it because you're doing this more, the living well policy? Yeah, it's nothing to do with the laws. Uh, it's It's about practical application of of what the knowledge we have today to help people live well and also to engage community to identify organizations within the community that are that are helping people who are you know chronically unwell psychologically um, and we're seeing a big shift to a more community-based support program um, our New mental health minister for mental health, Bronnie Edwards. Oh, sorry, uh, Bronnie Taylor. Beg your pardon. Um, you know, Bronnie is a very practical person, and and she's very very supportive of organisations that are providing direct support to people out of hospital. And what what's your what do you see? What what do you experience? What are the greatest challenges with your role in sharing these living well policies? I think in relation to the mental health sector. Um, we need to shift the focus to a proactive approach. It has been a traditional reactive approach. So we try and provide services and support to people when they are psychologically unwell. 
and we we will never be able to to catch up to that if we keep trying to to model it on a on a reactive approach so it's it's a challenge but my belief is we need to be far more proactive from the earliest possible age in a person's life to educate them about how to remain physically and mentally well and not develop uh, these terrible illnesses that they can develop and that's uh, that's a major challenge programs to be implemented is that your thoughts i'm sorry robo would you be looking at school programs to get it into the yeah, 100%. I'm, I'm all for education um, from the earliest possible age, like we're talking preschool here, you know, basic things like sleep hygiene uh, and nutrition and the encouragement of, of movement. They're, they're things that we, uh, we know that our, our young people, uh, for many of them, they're, they're so adversely affected because they are not doing the things that they need to do. And a lot of that gets back to they just don't know why they need to do them and the impact of, of not doing them. Yeah, it's so powerful at that age too. And that's what I loved. I had Minnie on the podcast just recently and talking about his programs that he does with the kids. And it goes back to educating them on sleep, the food, the movement aspects, all of that, not just about you know, let's just train for footy. Exactly. And uh, it's it's something that we need as a society to embrace because, you know, we are seeing so many young people today are so terribly, terribly unwell uh, trying to cope with their schooling through their high school, university, you know, it's a horrific fact but the rate of suicide amongst our young people is 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 increasing um, and the, the despair that for those people who are suicidal, their families, it's a horrific situation and you know, suddenly just because those people turn 18 doesn't mean all of a sudden they're, they're, they're great health again. You know, they then carry this with them into their, into their tertiary educations and all their workplaces where the challenges in many ways can be even be greater. So they're even more vulnerable to to the adverse uh, effects of, of life. Yeah, I tell you what blew me away when I moved to Sydney, coming from a small country town and, and not being exposed to other schooling systems, and then to hear that primary schools didn't hire, a lot of primary schools didn't actually have PE teachers and therefore, you know, they didn't prioritise PE. They would get occasionally, they would get a, they would outsource to another company to come in and teach the movement aspects and the gaming aspects. And because a lot of philosophies in the schooling system is around getting their grades higher means that they've got to do more classroom time. And what, how do they make more classroom time? They remove the, the physical activity. Yeah, and I'm, I'm afraid I don't agree with that. Um, no. I, think, I think the from a very basic viewpoint, um, we need to allow our young people to develop physically and mentally the way the body uh, was designed to develop and grow and mature. And uh, we're seeing that you know, the, the lack of sleep that, that people, young people are getting today is having, a, I think, a catastrophic effect on them. Yeah, another thing that blew me away, actually you'd be interested to hear this, I do work with the, the Calm Mind Project. So we step into schools and we teach meditation, mindfulness and mindset 
and I'm always talking about all these extra elements as well, but I could not believe how many kids around the, the year two and year three that were saying that they have trouble sleeping because of their busy minds and their yeah. I'm putting the word stress to it, but I thought, God, I didn't even know what stress was or a busy mind at that age. It was definitely no trouble sleeping. I was worn out from being so active all day. And then to yep. get to hear these kids, they really, they honestly, truly struggle with it. So to teach them, we teach them how to breathe and we teach them how to breathe to calm down during the day and we teach them how to breathe to help them get to sleep. And But yeah, it just blew me away that kids these, this young are talking about sleep problems and they say we've got a sleep epidemic now imagine what it's going to be like if we don't jump in like you said with these proactive approaches that's that's my greatest fear that uh you know there's a tsunami building and uh it's it's yeah the potential is uh is catastrophic just one sec robo sorry all right Sorry, mate. My, my apologies. No dramas at all. We'll start to wrap it up now anyway. That's okay. So I've got a few questions before we do wrap up and there's a few here that I ask all the guests. And the first one is, what do you believe is good action for people to take to be more impactful in their lives and in their communities, to make more of an impact? I think that you need to be... Uh, a living, breathing example of how you would like others to be. That's true leadership right there, to lead by example. Yeah, yeah. The, and I think it's the Gandhi quote, um, be the change you want to see in the world. Yeah, and I and I see that as my responsibility with the, the Mental Health Commission, Robbo, that I, if I'm going to be there as a person who is asking people, requesting people to be physically and mentally well, then I need to be in that place to be an example of that. Brilliant. I love it. Now, two-part question here. Uh, where can we learn more about you? So social media or LinkedIn or a website, and then how can I and the listeners help you on your journey? I, um, yeah, I'm very active on social media. So I have a Twitter account. Um, I have an Instagram account. I am I have a, a LinkedIn account. Uh, I don't have a public Facebook account. That's one thing I sort of keep amongst my friends. Um, I also have a website, which is www.alansparks.com. Uh, and certainly people can contact me through my website. Uh, my email address is alan, full stop, sparks, S-P-A-R-K-E-S, C-V, at gmail.com. And... Sorry, mate, your second part of your question. How can I and the listeners help you on your journey, mate? Oh, look, I think that we, we need to promote the good things that are happening. We need to promote the good work people are doing. Uh, there's been a lot of focus on, on the negative, and I think it's very, very important that as much as we can, we showcase people who are making a difference to others' lives through their their personal, their personal efforts. Um, we need to create more positivity. Uh, and a big one is just be kind to each other. You know, I'm, I'm patron of the Stay Kind Foundation, which I'm very proud of. And uh, July is Kind July. And we are asking, yeah, we just, we're, A, we're asking people to go to the Stay Kind website to make a pledge. But if we can just all do 
one act of kindness every day, we can make a huge difference to the world. Oh, I love that. I often say to people, gratitude and kindness are your new best friends. <laughs> so true, mate. So true. There's so much depth to it. Now, Alan, one of my top core values is giving and I give all my guests a gift for giving their time and value on the podcast. And mate, I'd love to give you a gift that fully aligns with the proactive approach that we've been talking about in regards regards to maintaining and, and enhancing your health and well-being. And I know you've got a lot of this knowledge already from, from Mini, but I've got an online program called Optimal You, How to Transform and Optimize Your Gut Health and Gut-Brain Connection. I've teamed up with a functional medicine practitioner to create this. And you know it's something that we've had amazing results from with people where you know, not just teaching them what to do, but like you said before, the importance of the why and linking also into your belief around the the importance of educating young ones. We've had some families that say how great it is because now they know how and why to help their children in this area too. So mate, I'd love to give you a place uh, in, in that program with us around gut health and gut brain connection. Oh mate, thank you so much. Um, yeah, look, I've uh, fortunately been yeah, learned so much from Minnie and by following um, his advice and some other knowledge I've gained. You know, as, as you know, I changed my eating habits a long time ago and the benefits it's given me and my family have been simply extraordinary, not only in the weight loss but you know, reversing type 2 diabetes, uh, better mental health, better physical health, uh, just been extraordinary. So... This is an area we really, really need to dig deep down into to, uh, to help people understand the critical importance of, of nutrition and mental health and physical health, of course. So you've reversed uh, type 2 diabetes from, from your changes? I have, yep. Love it. Dropped uh, 12 kilos, uh, more energy, uh, able to train harder, longer. You're still playing rugby at a, perhaps a, an age I should have given up years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Credit to you. You're doing well to run around on the rugby field, mate. <laughs> yeah, but I love it. I love it. Awesome. Yeah, and like you said there before with the, you know, the gut-brain connection and we're seeing all of these just proven study after study of the link between gut health and mental health or and yeah. even mental illness. It's yes. super powerful. Yeah, that's something that uh, we need to really, really promote as much as we can. Yeah, that's right. That's that's the journey that I'm on, absolutely. Excellent, excellent. <laughs> now, is there anything else you want to say to the listeners or anything you'd like to ask me? I think that it's very important that, A, we know that things can go wrong in our lives and none of us are immune from experiencing terrible things. But it's important that when our health starts to fail, we, we just get back to the basics and, and work as hard as we can to rebuild our foundation stones. But also equally important that when someone that we care about is not doing too well, um, we're there to stand beside them and support them as much as we can and having having that capability is uh, is the opportunity to not only to change a life, but it can be times where you'll actually save someone's life by doing so. So powerful. And it's 
like we teach in the change room, it's about those 1% improvements. We don't want people to think that they don't know where to start. So they don't start. It's about just making those 1% improvements that add up to the big improvements over time. Yep. hundred percent from the 1%. <laughs> Alan, you're a legend. You are that limp breathing example of the peaks and troughs of the human experience and you're inspiring so many people that it is possible to turn your life around and bring yourself back from those from those troughs. So keep shining your impactful light to the world, my man. Thank you so much, Robo. Um, love talking to you, mate, as always. And uh, I really miss you. I know you're a long way away, but um, every time I see you, it, it just makes my day. So it's been great to chat. Looking forward to connecting again and seeing that big smile on your dial, mate. <laughs> okay. Good on you, mate. Thanks, Robo. Wow. What a story. What a journey Alan has been on and is now thriving on. I love his philosophy of the proactive approach with his living well policy and his passion and purpose to promote the good work. Now's a good time to just ask yourself, how proactive are you being with your mental health and looking at improving each of those four foundation stones, for example, the eating, sleeping, movement slash exercise, plus the diaphragm breathing. I love how much he's taken on the diaphragm breathing and just taken it into his work and his personal life since we exposed him to it through the change room programs. The diaphragm breathing for me, it's, I believe it's by far the most transportable and impactful tool we all have. And when you prioritize this practice consistently, your mind, body and soul will thank you for it and beg you for more of it. <laughs> Make sure you follow Alan online and check out what he's up to and where he's speaking guitar. You might be able to catch him in action. Plus, grab a copy of his book to find out more about his story. Also, don't forget to check out all the details for our Gut Health and Gut Brain Connection online program. Actually, speaking of diaphragm breathing, this is a big component of what I teach in this program. The hows and whys and other methods of breathing and I think you'll be really blown away at how many health benefits there are to this diaphragm and, and efficient reading. Yourlifeofimpact.com forward slash gut health. And as always, remember, this is your life journey, your life of impact. <laughs>